0: Welcome to another Mother Runner. This is Sarah Bowen Shea. I'm joined by Ellison Weist. Hello, Ellison. Hey, Sarah. How are you? I am well, and I hope you are. I am. I am. I had to uh, get over a little hinky walking for a while because I overdid it on my second outing of uh, walk-run intervals. Oh, no. <laughs> it just felt so good, and it was a Saturday, and I didn't have any time constraints, And so I was out for an hour and I just mixed in too much running to it. I stretched the running intervals out you know, past two or three blocks to, you know, I don't know, four or five blocks. And, and so um, I was a little hinky on Saturday and into Sunday.
1: Uh, Well, lesson learned,
0: I guess. I mean, yes, yes. And And thanks uh, for telling us. Yes. And fear put back into me so that, (laughs) um, let's see on so then on I guess on Monday, all the time since then, I've done half an hour. So that that seems more reasonable and kept it to two or occasionally three blocks. So, Smart. Yeah. And they're short blocks. They're east-west blocks. Yeah, I yes. remember. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Keeping Me Company on it is a new audiobook that I started listening to. It is the latest from Richard um, Osman I think is how oh, yes. Mom pronounces his name it's the yeah. latest installment in the Thursday Murder Club series it's called The Bullet That Missed Yes I read it Oh you read it already my goodness yeah. you are just you're on it I can't get anything by you <laughs> But you're
1: listening to the audio.
0: Yes. And it is the, one of the narrators is Fiona Shaw, who is an actor. I just adore. I love her. Love her. So she plays that duplicitous boss on killing Eve. If folks don't immediately recognize her name and, and as I was listening, I didn't I didn't see who was the narrator. I didn't I guess I skipped past that part when they introduced and I'm like, wait, wait, I really like this person. Who is this person? And then I could slowly say and I'm like, oh, but sometimes she doesn't play a good person. Like I had all these feelings before I could remember. <laughs> she must. Does she
1: voice the uh, XMI5? Oh, yes. Elizabeth. Yes. Okay. Elizabeth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, yeah.
0: Yeah. She does the whole thing. Oh my gosh. She was just doing a, an American accent. Oh, and she just slipped into it so casually. It was, oh my it goodness. It fabulous. Yes. So I'm really enjoying it. I just, um, you know, they're witty and clever. The question is, do we think they tend toward the twee, Ellison? You know, that's a good question. I would
1: say possibly the geriatric twee, but I think they've got a little bit more substance in some cases. But I would say that they do sort of fall on the edge of my chewing gum for the brain
0: category. Yeah. Yes. Yes. But they are, they're whimsical in their own way. I I find them clever. Yeah. Yes. Very clever. Yes. I find them very enjoyable borderline frothy too. So mm-hmm. just just for fun. So so, what are you reading these days? Well, I guess we're going to stay in the category of uh, British authors because mm-hmm.
1: my first five-star book of the year was Ooh. called, it's an older book. Uh, mm-hmm. It's available in paperback. It's called Brother of the More Famous Jack. Mm-hmm. And it has a foreword by Maria Semple, if that gives mm-hmm. you any idea. Mm-hmm. The author is Barbara Trepido. And it is a little quirky a mm-hmm. uh, coming of age that is has more depth and oomph to it than what I call as you say frothy coming of age books, which I can <laughs> no longer tolerate and about a young girl who's essentially sort of falls in love with an entire family mm. as she's going through her young adulthood, and it's just just very interesting. So I went from there to another author named Claire Chambers, Mm -hmm. and I'm reading her most uh, recent book, which is called Small Pleasures, Mm. also about a a woman living in London who works for a very small newspaper newspaper. And it uh, gets caught up in a story where a woman claims that uh, she has had a virgin birth. Mm. And in, it's another case of where uh, the lead character becomes kind of involved with this woman and her family. Mm. But I'm enjoying it. I seem to be sort of on a, uh, a British author's kick, which yes. I do from
0: time to time. Yes. Oh, it's it's such a good kick to get on. I do that with television as well. Oh, Although yes. Now I am watching a Korean kind of mm, thriller drama. It's called Little Women. Oh, I heard about that. Yes, what it's on it? Netflix. It's, oh, it's so engrossing and I'm just really enjoying it. And it's 12 episodes long. I didn't know that when I got into it. Wow. Um, How yes. long
1: is each episode?
0: Mm, at least an hour. Sometimes wow. run over Ooh. an hour. Yes. Ooh. Yes. So it's, it, it's a really good, really intriguing and... It's just, I haven't watched a ton of stuff set in Korea. I mean, I guess the last one, what was the... Um, uh, pachinko? No, no, um, I didn't want it. The one that won the Academy Award The about the uh, house. Oh, wait a with The P. Yes. yes. Um, people are yelling it as we we're well, trying yes, to figure this out. thank you for yelling <laughs> yeah, it and yes. sending it. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, Parasite. There you go. There you I go. knew it began with a p. Yeah, I get partial yeah. I get <laughs> partial credit for that, right? <laughs> partial para. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's that's quite enjoyable and and supposedly it's ever so loosely based on the Louisa May Alcott novel. I'm not seeing it yet except for the <laughs> fact that it's about three sisters instead of four, but <laughs> but yeah, I I highly recommend it. I Okay, really, good. Um, good something be, for me to knit to. Mm. Oh, well, Will except that you have to read that. I I Oops. I do it with subtitles. Yeah, okay. so you got to look right. at the That's screen. What, mm-hmm. eh. Yeah, see. Okay, and you can't get tired while you watch it because you have to keep your eyes open. <laughs> <laughs> <I'm> so <laughs> so many demands. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, and you and I, speaking of books, you and I both recently read the book by our guest today, and we both enjoyed it immensely. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh my! Oh my goodness. Yes. So I'm so excited for our three-peat guest, former pro runner, current coach, activist, entrepreneur, mother runner, and fellow Oregon resident, Lauren Fleshman. And also on that list of descriptors, she is the author of the, as I said, fantastic, just published book, Good for a Girl, A Woman Running in a Man's World. It's part memoir, part a push for equity for women in sports. And just, we're so excited for this conversation. Well, welcome back to the show, Lauren. Uh, the first time we met in person at the Happy Girls Race in Ben, you're about a month away from delivering your first baby. So uh, we, we've yeah. come a long way. <laughs> yeah, now he's almost
2: 10. And there's a five-year-old in the house, too, that just grew two inches in the last month and a half.
1: <laughs> Not literally, yeah. but she's really sprouting. <laughs> right now. Well, for folks who don't know your running background, Lauren, can you please share some of the highlights? And uh, I'll let you determine what the highlights are. Well, I had an incredible high school running experience. I didn't do competitive
2: running before that Uh, i played softball and just kind of like neighborhood you know roller skating and stuff like that for activity but um i fell in love with running and i fell in love with my team and had a wonderful coach with like a good big picture attitude and had really bolstered me with a lot of protection going into my college career and then college yeah college was also a really great experience i raced for stanford university I had, it was mostly a great experience because of the people and because I didn't get hurt. And the 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 joy killer of Mm -hmm. a lot of collegiate athlete experiences, which I dive into a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. And then I raced, I got to race professionally for 13 years. So I think some highlights were really like my first NCAA championship was a huge highlight for me as a sophomore at Hayward field, getting to defend that title two years in a row after that was just like, a very big emotional experience each time, mm-hmm. high stakes and big payoff, and and then a few races around the world. Like I loved racing in London and Belgium, and uh, the World Championships in Daegu, South Korea was where I finished seventh, and I had such a joyful experience. I mean, I'd competed in World Championships before that, but I it took until my last trip to be able to really feel. The joy around me and the presence and to let myself dream really big without immediately being afraid of failing mm-hmm. after that mm-hmm. like almost like withdrawing your wish to the universe as soon as you place it because you're scared <laughs> like I didn't do that that
1: year mm. and that was that was really awesome yeah well in the acknowledgement section of your book and on social media you were refreshingly candid about your mental health struggles during the pandemic And we know a lot of the folk in this community can empathize. But can you share a bit about it and also what helped you kind of move out of it?
2: Oh, yeah. I think so much of parenting and the way I react to it is expectations. (laughs) And when things fall short of my expectations or are dramatically different, I struggle. I get dysregulated. So, like, if I'm taking my kid and I go through this big effort to go to a water park and they're having a huge meltdown and being – and just – I don't know, acting like they're so hard done by that no one ever does anything for them. It's like that, it's that contrast that just sets me spinning. And so the pandemic was this massive version of that for me, like the timing, I sold my book to Penguin Press in February of 2020. Mm. And I was one of the last people to like do an in-person pitch Mm -hmm. with editors, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. at that time. And then I had this three-week trip to New Zealand planned without my kids where I was going to put a huge surge into the beginning part of my book and then with a mentor of mine who lives there and then come home with a schedule for how to integrate that in with parenting and life because I had a one-year deadline. And then the trip got canceled, obviously. It was like for March 14th. And I think New Zealand closed on March 10th. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it was, it just kept going down from there. Like... I kept, then I tried to scramble some beach hotel thing for one week. Mm -hmm. And then they were like, we we are closing down because of COVID. We can't, like, we don't have appropriate ventilation. And then I was like, okay, now I am just stuck at home. Oh, and my kids are stuck at home. Mm -hmm. Oh, and we live in a two bedroom, 1000 square foot house Mm -hmm. and we're both self-employed. So somehow we have to have a two-year-old, a seven-year-old. I'm a homeschooler all of a sudden um, and a preschool (laughs) and, Jesse and I work from home Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and like it just, our house felt so small, Mm -hmm. like so incredibly small. And when parks are closed and I mean, just the claustrophobia of it all, just, and the fear for the world and the fear, all the unknowns, like those early days of Mm -hmm. COVID, not knowing just like if you were going to catch it from being a hundred feet away from a person, you just, Mm -hmm. there was so much we didn't know then. So I think that really sent me spinning. I think it was hard on everybody. And then the, that drop in expectations from my Child-Free New Zealand Writer's Retreat. (laughs) 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 Oh, Yeah, (laughs) I didn't recover very well.
0: But I think it would have been a a different book if you'd taken that tact, don't you think?
2: Probably. I certainly was raw. Mm -hmm. And by the time, it took me nine months to actually start working on the book in earnest. Mm. And by then, I, I was starting antidepressants. I found a way to move my body every day. I set a very, very small goal of half a mile a day Mm. because I just found that even what previously was like a chill goal of 20 minutes of exercise was too much. Mm. I was so overwhelmed and it just felt hard to get out the door. So I had my half mile loop. I'd walk out my door and I'd walk around our closest little park and home. And some days I would run it, but most days I would walk it. And that was it. I mean, that was all I could manage to do for my body for a few months. Wow! And then after that consistency and the medication started to help it, it takes a while to, to help. And then I, I also had a practice of doing a certain amount of words a day, like something very small and digestible.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I was reading James Clear's um, Atomic yeah. Habits at mm-hmm. the time just to try to find a way to like have any, any structure and like lower the bar just as low as I needed to lower it just to have any kind of semblance of, of knee space. Mm-hmm. in my day again. Mm-hmm. And then, then that did do what he said it would do. Like over time, the, the consistency built like a, a kind of a shift in my identity. Like I am a person who moves again. I am a person who writes
3: mm-hmm.
2: and now I can sort of start
1: expanding the amount of time I spend on those things. Mm-hmm. Ooh, that's yeah. great. I mean, that is good advice for anybody, whether, you know, I mean, I love the part about just half a mile. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, just, not, oh, I love that. That's gonna help a lot of people.
2: Mm-hmm. well, yeah, it is. it's and i've I've had to d- revisit that. like I've gone through other periods of being unable to prioritize my running um and exercise like just from life and kids and mental health or whatever it is. But now that I've had that positive experience, it's really great to be able to go back to that. and go, no, it all it takes is like a half of a mile a day mm. to get me back into something again. Mm. And if I do that, I'll be proud of myself. Like, I'll, I'll be proud of myself that I did something.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that. So it's time for a brief break to hear from the folks who helped bring you this show. Stay with us. So Lauren, your book is so incredibly well written. It's engaging. It's thought provoking. Ellis and I both just ate it up. Um, We we were talking before the show how she marked hers all up with post-it notes because she didn't want to write in it. I had the same thing and I have... T- uh, two pages of uh, paper just covered in notes and quotes and questions and things. I'm so did you curious.
2: Realize- I want to know what, I want to know what it was. Like what grabbed you?
1: What were the themes oh, that grabbed yeah. you the most?
0: Oh, the themes. That, okay. You go first, Allison. I got to put on my reading glasses to see this.
1: Okay. I think some of the things that got me was how you pinpointed so well about the differences between female runners and male runners in such a way that, I mean, we all know that, people, if you really sit down and think about it, but the way you pinpointed it and the way you talked about you can't coach, especially young girls,
3: mm-hmm. the
1: way you coach their male equivalent. Uh, that really struck me. Also, I have to commend you for, Uh, The times Mm -hmm. that you called yourself out on certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't want to spoil it for the readers of the book, but there were several moments where I was like, add a girl because you called yourself out on things. And at first I was afraid, oh, she's been so hard on herself in other areas. But I felt like you were able to sort of make the transition between, okay, this is where I've got to be kind to myself. And, okay, this is where I need to, Mm -hmm. to speak the truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, be accountable. Yeah. Yeah. There were there were several things, but those I thought I just I just found my husband was stunned cuz he's like, "You never mark up your books." <laughs> and I did not mark I marked them with stickies. I said, "I'm only marking them with stickies. Not." <laughs> it's still
0: within the rule. What about you, Sarah? For me the theme of perfectionism that ran through it how you you know kind of came to realize that that you do have a, a it seems to me that you have a streak of perfectionism in in you and how you could let that be and yet still work around it in a way and learn how to get past that how to have other goals other than quote unquote being perfect and 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 new definitions of perfect yeah. if the, if the, such a thing exists
2: yeah, it's that I loved writing about that subject because I've been doing so much examining. I call myself a recovering perfectionist right now <laughs> at this stage <laughs> in my life, but like mm-hmm. that desire to achieve mastery of things is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when perfectionism is achieving things for approval or to be like worthy that there's boxes you have to check, mm-hmm. to, that that comes from a place of insecurity. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to figure out what was what, like, when, when, when do I need to root out this drive related to perfectionism in this negative way that takes me away from myself? And when do I want to lean more into the part that is me that just Mm -hmm. liked to balance a peacock feather on my nose (laughs) till I could do it for two (laughs) minutes straight? Like that, that's just who I am. And I love the feeling of, of like getting a piano song down, you know? Mm -hmm. I love it. It's great. And I don't want to lose that part of myself. It's so satisfying.
0: Yeah, yeah. I told Ellison before this that I suddenly realized that to me, you are the Taylor Swift of the running world that you do. (laughs) You do everything (laughs) so well to the outside world. You seem so perfect. I mean, entrepreneur, writer. I mean, it is so evident how incredibly smart you are and and what a gift you have with words. And then you you are able to grow a business. You're able to hit these numbers on the track. You know, you seem like a very engaged, thoughtful, concentrated mother. I mean, just all these things. And yet then, like Taylor Swift, the idea of perfection, you can't quite live up to it, even though in other people's eyes you seem that way.
2: Yeah, you get a lot of praise when you do things well. Mm-hmm. So that that's where it gets tricky. You you associate achievement with love. Mm-hmm. And I think that that can make you just live your life dancing for other people. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. If you're not careful. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: And I used to, I used to like worship the gods of achievement. I mean, I thought that that was like the the noblest way to live a life Mm -hmm. uh, was to be trying to be excellent at something. And I just... I mean, now I follow the nap ministry on Instagram. I'm like, how do I I prioritize (laughs) rest? Like this is unsustainable for a society. Like if that's the bar, Mm -hmm. my gosh, like Mm -hmm. we'll just run, especially as moms, like we'll run ourselves completely ragged.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: You'll reach a bar and then you'll raise it immediately. And we'll just keep doing that until we're on fire, you know, (laughs) just like
3: bones.
2: (laughs) Like I had this experience of taking my kids to a water park last weekend Like, I didn't want to go. I was exhausted. I had just done this Powell's book event. I should have canceled the event Mm -hmm. at the water park because I I find amusement park environments extremely stressful on my nervous system on a good day. Mm -hmm. But it was like I was doing the thing I thought I should do, almost like to make up for all this time I've spent doing this book stuff. But I was so activated after the book event. Like, I needed to lay down and just have a movie day with my kids. Mm -hmm. But I did it. And so as a result, I was just like, I could feel myself it felt like 50 people were screaming in my ears Mm. in the water park. (laughs) I could hardly talk to my kids. Like it was, I just survived the two and a half hours. Mm. And then I had this vision of like a New Yorker cartoon where your kids are like running out of the water park and they're just so happy. And like the mom is just like a charred singed
3: husk, (laughs) you know, like glad you had fun kid.
2: And like, I'm like, I just can't do that to myself. Like I have to find a way to prioritize my well-being and be like, we can go to the water park another time. Yes, I know you're going to have a tantrum now. but <laughs> Otherwise, I'm a husk.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So when, when did you realize that you wanted to write more than a memoir?
2: Um, I think I always knew that I would want to write. Uh, the, um, well, I guess it just depends on how people view a memoir. So I guess, like, I wanted the book to be... A book about my running, but really a book about something else. And there's this journalist and author that I really admire, Liz Weil, out of San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And when I had an early conversation with her about my idea of playing with a book, that's what she said. She's like, well, you got to be able to answer the question. Like all the best memoirs can answer the question. This is a book about my life as a dentist, but it's really a book about
3: Mm -hmm. and
2: then fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. And if you can Mm -hmm. do that, like then the book is likely to connect with more people than dentists and it'll be... (laughs) Like writing a book is so difficult in the first place. So if you're going to spend all that time doing it, one of the things that can keep the wind under your wings is knowing that there is that that second part of the sentence that you're working towards to connect with people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, from the beginning. And also it's like, I think I liked the challenge of... It was very, very, very challenging, (laughs) more than more than the challenge that I initially was attracted to, which was like, how do you pick the scenes and moments from your life?
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Like there may be really important scenes in your life for your life, but they don't relate to your other theme. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And so just that curation of story, what stays, what goes, how do you weave these two things together? That just stimulated my mind in a really exciting way. Mm. And when my mental health was better, that was easier to do. That proved to be extremely difficult to add that extra layer. When I wasn't doing well, Mm -hmm. I was like, man, why didn't I just write, I was born in 1981. (laughs) (laughs) And then I did this. Like, I was really wishing I was writing that
1: kind of book for a while. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about the phrase good for a girl. And I guess Sarah and I had a little tit for tat sort of over it because I said to her, oh, that phrase used to make me kind of preen, but now not so much. And she said, oh, I've always thought of as a slab. And I was saying to her, that's a difference. I'm 10 years older than her. Plus, mm. I was raised in the South in mm. the 70s and into, you know, some of the 70s. And so I can vividly remember i probably about 11 or 12, when a guy used that, an older boy, you know, used it. Yeah. And he said, ah, you're good for a girl. And I came home all sort of like that. Yeah. So I guess, you know, now we think of it as a slight, especially like Sarah said, I've always thought of it that way. And I'm Mm -hmm. just wondering how you picked that. And as somebody of a little different generation, has that always been a slight to you?
2: I think I've seen it as both. Like at first I could tell it was a, it was meant to be a compliment, right? Like when somebody, there were times when someone would say it to me where it was like, um, oh, the the example you used in that generation, it even just being able to be seen as a person doing that thing Mm -hmm. and that they were tuning into your aptitude for it at all in, and like conversing about your aptitude at it as like you know that's like women and achievement and now that's a topic of conversation so being good for a girl at that is like well you're really standing out for your kind like that's cool you know but then i would hear that and then i'd be like well what like why does it have to be different than being just good because in the 90s growing up in the 90s in the girl power revolution we were essentially just lied to all the time. Like you can do anything. There are no <laughs> obstacles left. Sexism yeah. is dead. Like so that you know you you. I'm I'm assuming that you were not under you were not sold a lie that sexism was dead from the time you were five.
1: Well, and what happened with us is then we got into women in the late seventies and early eighties, and it was I can cook up the bacon. <laughs> <laughs> I can work. The object. I can be a great mother.
0: I can yeah, do- I could do. Everything. (laughs) usually woman. Uh Yes, that's exactly
2: what it was. Yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating how it's evolved and how quickly it evolves and how it's continuing to evolve. I mean, just how like gender right now in some ways in our society has like never been more important Mm -hmm. and it's also dead. Mm -hmm. Like you could talk to, especially in queer community, like you talk to people in queer community who are like, gender is dead Mm -hmm. and where the use of they, them pronouns is expanding and I can, I can, Like in talking to people, like I can see the appeal there. Like, yeah, if you don't, when I talk to people who use they, them pronouns to refer to others and they're talking about a photographer and their name is Alex, I can feel my brain going, is Alex a woman or a man? (laughs) Like it really wants to know. And then I'm like, but why do I need to know? Right. Right? So I like, I like that it's pushing me to Mm
3: -hmm.
2: figure out why it matters to me even, Mm -hmm. because what assumptions am I hoping to connect to that Mm -hmm. pronoun when I hear it and why? and um but then it's also never been more important because with trans people who identify with the gender opposite of what they were assigned at birth like it can lead to the exclusion of spaces that make them feel safest it can lead to cisgender people having mixed feelings and complex feelings about the inclusion of trans people into those spaces. Right. So it's like extremely important and also dead.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I'm, I feel like we're just uh, like, it just continues to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I want, I really want to know, I want to fast forward 20 years and see where we're at. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, we all have something to look forward to hopefully. <laughs>
3: yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, this isn't your first book, the Believe journals that you co authored with uh, Roe, McGettigan Dumas. Mm-hmm. yep they're still incredibly popular, and in mm-hmm. good for a Girl, you mentioned journaling several times, so I'd like for you to talk about the power of the written word when it comes to processing training, you know striving for goals, overcoming setbacks, and the like. yeah, I think it just it's really important to keep you in touch with the
2: the daily narrative that contributes to a larger story. We all engage with story, with books in some way, audio, whatever, or whether we were forced to in school or we choose to do so, or we watch movies, humans have always enjoyed story. And and so I think that an act of journaling is a way to kind of just commit to your own story a little bit every day, remind yourself here, each day matters, but it's also part of something bigger. And you don't, And there's mystery and you don't know where it's headed and you have the place you'd like it to go, but you don't really know. And when you do that daily practice for years on end, it can bring you a comfort when things aren't going as planned because you can reference back to all the other times that things haven't gone as planned and the like unexpected delights or the the lessons learned or the growth that happened and and then you're not going to jump to the conclusion that this is like world ending or or whatever like you just it just helps me at least stay more open minded to where it might go next and maybe create a little bit of neutrality even to the day to day that grounds me because i can be a pretty emotional person and then for the kind of journaling, other journaling I talk about in the book is it's just a key way for me to make sense of my very stormy mind. Mm. And I am a very emotional person, I'm a highly sensitive person. And if I don't take out the garbage, and like put it down, it clogs up. I can't, I can't connect with people in the same way I can't love as deeply. Mm. And it just creates this sort of noise. And so I've found that it can be a very useful way to just get down. Like, I don't even have to, it doesn't have to end, the entries have to end with me having figured it out. Even sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like a taking the pieces out of my brain and clearing up some space. And then I can be like, okay, I
0: trust I've written that down somewhere. Mm-hmm. Cool. Moving on. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
0: So, all right. So spoken words either said out loud or repeated in your head can have a major impact as well as those written words. And so in the book you wrote, to change your identity, you must start by changing your thoughts. So can you share how you use self-talk to help quiet negative thoughts running through your head? And, and do you coach your athletes to use mantras?
2: Yeah, I definitely do. I think that, um, I had this very extreme example where I'd always been a very confident athlete and I'd watched other people struggle with anxiety. I mean, I'd get nervous before a race or whatever, but it wasn't, it didn't feel in my body the way it was feeling in other people's bodies around me. And, um, but then I had this one season where it, it completely changed. Like I won a national title. And then after that, I f- and I got a double the contract money from Nike, I finally was making like a good living, but it all could be taken away at any moment. it was like all like razor thin performance, little window that I had to meet. And all of a sudden, it just felt like racing was a threat to my body, my body was my nervous system was perceiving it as a threat, something that I, f- I could screw up and then my whole life would Would change uh, in in a negative way. It was a threat to my stability, my identity. And gosh, that feeling of anxiety, like extreme anxiety is so painful. It is Mm -hmm. so painful. I have so much more sympathy for that. And I've experienced it many times since then. Parenting is really good at helping you (laughs) connect with your anxious side. (laughs) But um, with that, I I started to tell a story about my fundamental story about myself changed, which is like, I am a person who has, who's a head case. I'm a head case. I drop out of races. I like just the way that I could see that those thoughts that I'm not good enough, or I'm an imposter here. Um, I'm bigger than all my competitors. I don't really have what it takes. I'm not as committed as them Mm -hmm. that directly impacted my ability to push through the tough part of the race. It was it was like I had a flat tire, and when my I, when my thoughts were positive about myself, that I'm I'm tougher than anyone out here. If I'm like, if someone lets me stay close with a lap and a half to go, they're going to regret it because I'm going to give them a run for their money. Like I had those kinds of thoughts, and that led me to be more likely to have those behaviors. Mm. And so when it changed quickly the other direction, and it dramatically changed my life and my <laughs> daily experience with running, and I had a sports psychologist tell me that's why this isn't a mystery. This is, this is exactly why this is happening and you can reverse it. That was extremely helpful. And, and then I did that. So I changed the words that I used or the thoughts that I had. And I made, I made myself say them out loud. I made myself write them down. It felt so uncomfortable. It felt like lying to myself, Hmm. but then I just was encouraged to give myself permission that even if it feels like lying, who cares? Like nobody's listening, just (laughs) except you go ahead then. lie to yourself. See how it feels for a while and it, it did over time, it started to shift my beliefs about myself and the behaviors of things I was willing to do and risks I was willing to take. And then, yeah, then it, it changes your identity because you have just like I had six bad races in a row of dropping out or crying on the starting line, or whatever you ha- you put together six good ones in a row mm-hmm. and they don't even have to be great. They can just be adequate. And then you're like, Oh, I show up for, I'm a person who shows up for myself. Mm. Like I can follow through. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then from that place you can take bigger risks.
1: Yeah, and I'm thinking about the, I'll just call it the balls quote. Yeah. Entice everybody who hasn't read the book, but, you know, call it what you have, you know, you, I mean, it's grit, it's determination. But tell us what it did uh, on the same vein for your psyche when you decided that you were just going to value those things more than a win.
2: Oh, value having balls or having grit? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was huge because you can't control whether you win. You can't control, like winning depends on what everybody else does that day. And, you know, you, like you, if you respect the craft, then you and then you respect the people who are working hard every day on that craft. And there's going to be times when they're having the season of their life or the race of their year or whatever, and it doesn't line up with the, your race day. But you can always control if you show up with integrity, if you execute your race plan, if you... Do you do the things you say you're going to do? Like, do you really do th- do your best to do those things? And then, and like, are you, like, can you bear down and take a risk when you may fail? That one's hard. Like, I definitely don't want to under underestimate or downplay how difficult that is. Because even when I was at my most confident and had a lot, a string of great races behind me, getting to a place where I was willing to go from the comfort of second or third place in a race behind somebody else that was doing all the work to deciding to shoot out in front of them and show my entire hand to the audience. You're essentially saying, I want this. Mm -hmm. And you're letting everyone see your want and you're letting them feel that want with you. And then inevitably, they're going to feel the fear with you Mm -hmm. of you not getting what you want, of, of you taking that risk and failing. Right. And as a sensitive person, like I would feel that for myself and I would feel that for the crowd. Mm. And so it is safer to kind of stay tucked in or to like delay the kick to the very last meters because mm-hmm. you're showing your hand for less time. Mm-hmm. But then you're less likely to pull it off if you wait till the last meters.
0: Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Our our next question has exactly that to talk about in it. So when you were on fresh air last week, yes, NPR one week, AMR the next. I enjoyed hearing you talk about executing your plan, specifically that final kick in it's 600 meters to go yeah. in a 5,000 meter race. So, I mean, do the math. That's a lot of the race still left. Yeah. Uh, my hair is, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So as an athlete and a coach, what tips can you give regular runners for honing finishing speed and training and then accessing it in the race?
2: I think there's some simple things that you can do. Mm-hmm. And I also think like, don't do it if you don't want to do it. Like Mm -hmm. if you don't care about putting on a kick, like there's no.
0: Oh yeah. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Like
2: who cares, right? Mm -hmm. Like do the race you want to do, enjoy it the way you want to enjoy it. Of course it, it can be really fun to be passing people in the final straight, right. Versus being passed Mm -hmm. and to kind of like, just feel that openness in your chest and, and in your like lungs and just pushing up against the edge Mm -hmm. and knowing that you crossed the line, like getting into that last gear. I think that's, I think that can be really fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd say just to make sure you can do that in a way that is good for your body and and won't leave you hurting too much in the days that follow or weeks that follow (laughs) is to incorporate some strides, some faster running, just little like on a grass field or a track once a week, once every other week, even just make sure that your body has tapped into that other zone of where your body's more lifted where you're pushing off the ground more powerfully like all of kind of the the extra motions of our body clean up the faster you go mm. and so that that i i just feel like that's a good experience for a body to have at least every now and then mm-hmm. so i'd make sure you've done some of that and then then you i think of that as like a place i go mm. strides are like a place my body gets to go mm-hmm. and so then in the race if you want to have a finishing speed, you're like, okay, now I'm going to go to that place. I'm going to go to that place. It's like a little bit of a different form. It's a different space up here and it feels, yeah, it feels good. So I'd say just that it's pretty simple other than that. And like, don't worry about the other people. Like you're going to pass some people. If you do that, if you pick up the pace, you're going to pass some people. It's more about what it feels like in your body Mm -hmm. to like open yourself that way and lift and rise and push, Mm
0: -hmm. across the line Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. nice nice
1: well as you've uh you chronicle in your book you've come back from more than your fair share i feel of injuries um and that's another situation that our listeners can relate to so what advice do you have for returning to running post-injury no matter what a person's level of running is
2: oh yeah well as a person in my 40s now who isn't an elite athlete who doesn't have a gym coach who's not like automatically in my daily life structured to minimize injury, the game has totally changed for Mm. me. Like I'm much more likely to get hurt now Mm. because I'm not, it relies on me having the discipline to do strength work, PT work on my own um, and fit it into my life. So what I do, and I don't know if this is like good advice, what I do is I have have, um, decreased my volume, what my expectation is of how far I want to go to a distance that I know I can remain healthy while doing it Mm -hmm. without needing to do a bunch of PT and strength. Because at this stage in my life, I just don't really want to do those things. Mm -hmm. And I think that will change. Like I will have more space in the next year. And I want to have times in my life where I prioritize like, like a hit class with my friends or, or Pilates or some other thing that I'm at least once a week checking a box of engaging my core and my hips. And because you have to, like you have to engage your core and your hips and have strong feet to not get hurt when you're running regularly. Mm. So yeah, I don't run as much so that I can run without doing strength work. And then, <laughs> and then if you're coming back from an injury, you can get down the rabbit hole of a lot of different exercises, but I've just found that glutes like glutes and hips and feet like a mobile board, and glute exercises like clamshells and, or anything like that, that's like the, the just the essentials.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And if you're a PT or whoever that you talk to has specific things for your specific injury, cool, but, but you can really boil it down. I mean, you can spend three hours a day doing exercises someone tells you to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting. Yeah. It sure is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also just like, it's okay for your, like, I think a lot of what comes from, or used to come from ang- for anxiety for me during injury in the aftermath was what if my body changes? Mm-hmm. What if I lose fitness? Like there's a lot of anxiety about ch- the change. And now I just, I think having gone through it so many times, like wh- I have to get to a place where I just accept it Like at first I'm kind of wrestling with it. I'm mad about it. Things aren't turning out the way I want. Now I'm in this new reality. But then once I accept the reality, I'm like, you're going to be starting from scratch. Your body is going to change. And then like, then move on. And like as parents, parenting is incredible for flexing that muscle of like, (laughs) okay, new situation, change expectation, got to roll with it now this way. (laughs) And so we have to be able
1: to give that to ourselves too. That's great advice. Well, Lauren, you've done so much and you continue to do so much for girls and young women in running. Um, and as the mother of a young girl, can you give any advice to parents or in my case, grandparents for how best to encourage and support a daughter or granddaughter to take up running? To take it up yeah. or to get through it healthy, to take it up? Well, I think both maybe to take it up. And and I think your book is a excellent primer for staying doing it in a healthy manner
0: yeah I think yeah. I think taking yeah. it up because we get that question a lot from on our Facebook page and things people being like oh I really want my kids to follow in my footsteps hmm. and yeah you know, um yeah so I'd love if you could talk I about get that. that
2: desire I get oh, that desire yeah. like I hope it would be so nice if my kids if that's an activity we could share mm-hmm. but I don't know if it's like just the kind of firstborn that I have but every expectation I've had of what he would like or what we could do together has just, it's completely shattered already. And he's nine and a half. So I, <laughs> I like, I feel like the best thing I could do to have a chance of him wanting to run with me is to, to run and enjoy it mm. and invite him to the things that are the most fun for him too like don't drag him around to too much stuff if i can help it that will be torturous for him
3: mm-hmm.
2: i already did that like i made him come to a lot of coaching and so he's like i don't want to go to a
3: track ever again <laughs> i'm like oh
2: god okay <laughs> and who knows maybe he'll still come around but i think that like if if he has associations with that being like a, a place for me to have freedom and joy and friends and community like it's going to just remain on his list of possibilities mm-hmm. that he'd like to try to do and And I hope he'll just ask, or my daughter will just ask to join me sometime. Mm -hmm. And like, I've thrown out a couple loose invitations. Like Jude was complaining that I left in the morning and didn't hang out for breakfast Mm.
3: because
2: I wanted to go on a run. And I was like, well, it's really important to me to have my running time. It's also important for me to spend time with you. And as you get older, you'll always be welcome to join me on the run. Like Mm. that would be another way we could spend time together. Mm. But I am just sort of like leave it there. And I just see him sort of hear it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then... I don't know. I don't know what's happening in there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness. All right. Early on in the book, you wrote puberty is the one injury a girl can't come back from. So me being at the other end of the spectrum, I have to say it sprung into my mind that, that menopause is the same. Um, so, So can you talk more broadly about how female runners of every age need to accept that hormones play a big role in how we feel and perform on any given day?
2: Oh, yeah. Well, to clarify, I would that quote was um, I was quoting a coach okay. that says that because
0: mm-hmm.
2: I definitely don't believe it's an injury a girl can't come back from. But I do think that it's it's a great example of the way a male dominated culture that kind of where excellence is based on male experiences would view something that's that differs dramatically from that right and like like a a female puberty is the first thing that makes our bodies go on a completely different path from our male peers and their appearance and our hormones create a different lived experience chemically in our body than our male peers are experiencing like we have a monthly tide inside Mm -hmm. of us and that's beautiful like imagine if the world was built around that Mm -hmm. like It would be like there's, you you would just perceive, you would perceive that totally differently. But because we are in this world built by men for men and boys, and we fought really hard for access to all these spaces, the things that make us fundamentally different, it's of course, we view them sometimes as like obstacles, or problems. And I think about menopause is going to be on the horizon for me very soon, most likely I'm already having some pre menopause things. And my mom went through it at 45. Mm -hmm. So I see like, it's, it's right there. And they're like, it's so it's just not talked about unless you're talking to other women going through menopause, like, Mm -hmm. it's just like culturally ignored. Mm -hmm. And, and it's going to fundamentally change my day to day life Mm -hmm. in a way that will feel like an inconvenience, probably, or feel like a problem only because the space around me isn't acknowledging it, building around it, normalizing it, and like, of course, it, like it'll all like it's always inconvenient to feel different in your body. And mm-hmm. there's gonna be things that are uncomfortable. It's not just society that make puberty or menopause complicated mm-hmm. in your body feeling mm-hmm. the change, but it certainly helps if you're in an
1: environment that's supportive of it.
3: Mm-hmm. Like,
2: where's the most supportive or either of you experiencing that menopause? Oh, or have It's in our it? rearview mirror. Okay.
1: In my rearview, both of us. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where is the safest place you felt? best to be a woman going through menopause like you said it had to be with other other women because even I remember even mentioning it to people that were like probably you know five to seven years younger than me a lot of women mm -mm, don't want to talk about it what about you Sarah
0: yeah, well, I went through menopause early and it definitely was something I didn't want to talk about because I felt like it would it would age me, you know, to open up my mm-hmm. mouth and talk about it. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess just talking uh, at the time I was running with my best running friend, Molly, and her and I talking about it felt safe and to be seen in our unseenness because that Ellison and I have talked about this, that you get to a certain age and people literally just don't see you anymore in society. Mm. Molly and I went to our kids' high school to watch a basketball game. And I was like, Molly, you realize we could be sitting here naked and no one would bat an eye because they just don't see us. We are uh, invisible. Uh, <laughs> well, in some, in some ways, that helps. I have to say there have been some yes. circumstances where I'm like,
1: yeah, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Ellison, Ellison, when you shoplift it, it works well for you. So
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no one's
2: suspended yeah, yeah, front exactly. of my pants. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like you, the, it's crazy that to finally liberate from the whatever the gaze yeah. of our society yeah. is you need to age out of a certain category I don't know. I've heard a lot about this invisibility and I can, I'm I'm really going to be curious to be going through it. And there's like, if I'm around 20 year olds, I already feel it. Like if Mm -hmm. I'm hanging out around 20 year olds, it's like, Mm -hmm. you're just like the middle-aged person in the room. Like nobody's interested in talking Mm -hmm. to you at all. So (laughs) I imagine that just continues to expand. We have a problem in our culture of just not valuing aging women and the wisdom and value that they bring. Like we just are completely ignorant to it as a culture.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And then we can be free to do whatever we want. Like you said. That's exactly (sighs) right.
0: (laughs) Sticky finger, Allison. Yeah.
2: And stick with the people who know, like the thing that's crazy is thinking about like, but we've, if we continue to value each other and ourselves, we can create our own spaces where, where we feel like important and where we feel like we can reflect for each other, the value that we know we bring. Mm Mm-hmm. And, um, but I imagine that that just is, uh, well, your community is really important for that. And like yeah. un- spaces like this, where, where women can get together and, and be mirrors to each other. And mm-hmm. cause we are sort of separate, the world separates us out into our little nuclear,
3: mm-hmm.
2: nuclear families and our mm-hmm. school communities and whatever.
0: Yeah. I have to say that, um, as much as I love my husband, I daydream about in my old age, just being, living with a couple of my closest friends and just, you know, there's <laughs> days that I'm like, oh, I hope Jack dies young because then I'll get to live with Chalkley and Molly. And-
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, my best friend lives in Sweden and her husband and my husband are about the same age. And so we were very excitedly one time to, oh, wouldn't that be great? I could come over there. and we, I could live six months there and then we could come back here. And, and Carl was like in the other room going, what? Where am I in all of that? Exactly. Well, I will
2: say, like like having young kids changes that obviously makes that difficult. But like, as they grow up, I'm like, this is probably not going to earn me a lot of friends, but I just don't, I don't know why we can't just do that anyway. Like, like there's marriage can mean different things to different people, but you have one life. And if you want to live with your best friend, when you turn 50 and you're like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. We should be able to do
1: it. Yeah. <laughs> like we can be great friends, husband, you know, oh like we're all visit your next book title. I think uh, I think you're on to something here.
0: <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Call your agent right now. <laughs> All right, so 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 final question. Your book is full of so many memorable sentences. Again, I can't give you enough applause on your writing. And oh, so thank you. So my favorite is when you're writing about how exhausting advocacy can be and you write some days are like hacking a new path through thorns with a spoon while naked. <laughs> so so tell us how you keep hacking away at injustices and ignorant policies despite countless metaphorical scratches.
2: Oh, man. Well, obviously, I was in the midst of a thorny (laughs) um, wood (laughs) while writing the book. And I was just like, that was a deep reflection on just how I felt almost every day for months on end, writing the book was like I was naked going through bunches of thorns. Mm. I don't know, I think I, well, remind me the question again, because I just went to a dark place.
0: <laughs> come on back. Come on back. Come on back. Come back. Come back. Okay. So, so I mean, how do you keep leaning into your advocacy, oh. even though it is so challenging?
2: I, I mean, it breaks. I think that's the thing I'm learning is is taking breaks. And you have periods where you're going to have to push because adv- advocacy takes, takes persistence. Mm. But if you're doing it in community, then you can also treat it like a relay mm. where you're like pushing mm. and then allow other people to push. And so you can go through periods of time where maybe you're in the front hacking the thorns and then other times where you're behind the person hacking and you're offering encouragement. So maybe that looks like elevating somebody else's work while they're working really hard, reposting their articles, but then otherwise taking a rest from the parts that drain you the most. Mm. Um, And I think that that's okay. I think like any sustainable effort in advocacy requires periodization, just like running um, mm. or anything else.
0: Mm. That's awesome. Well, Lauren, we could, we could talk to you all day, but I, I suspect you have a few other things to do with the launch of your amazing book. I, we just wish you all the oh. success and I just hope that everybody picks it up and reads yeah. a copy. It's it's so good and it's so important. So thank you.
2: Thank you. I just got some good news yeah. that I'm, I'm made top 15 of hardcover nonfiction bestsellers in indie oh, bookstores wow.
3: fantastic across the
2: nation wow awesome. yeah so oh, congratulations uh, thanks, thanks. Yeah. so that's good so we'll pick it up at your local indie yeah. if you can yes <laughs> if you haven't bought it yet yes
0: yes yes <laughs> all right we'll we'll take good care
1: thanks lauren thank you oh love yeah. lauren fleshman <laughs> cool.
0: like enough yeah. said that's all yeah, there is to say exactly. love lauren fleshman love yeah. the book everyone yeah. should buy it buy it at an indie yeah. store yeah. yes yeah. yes And then join us this year at one of our retreats out right near where she lives. She's in Bend. We're going to be in Redmond, Oregon, June 9th through 12th in the high desert of Oregon. We are going to do hiking. There'll be some running, but no race. There will be far more hiking and it is so beautiful out there. And then we are also convening not too far from you, Allison, on Hilton Head Island, November 3rd through 6th, where there is a race. It's a half marathon or a quarter marathon. It's at a beachfront hotel. We have great speakers that come to each each event and loads of laughs and great meals, incredible meals, particularly out there in Redmond, which is close to selling out, and we need to have people book their hotel rooms. So if you're on the fence, now's the time to hop off that fence, go to another motherrunner.com, click on events, and sign up. And you can also pay by a firm, so you can have a payment plan so the credit card bill doesn't hit quite so hard. Our podcast day was produced in St. Paul, Minnesota by Barry Medora from Fire on the Bluff.
1: This was yeah, so much this fun. Was right. This Good. was wonderful. What yeah. are you reading real quickly, Lauren? Um I just
2: got I keep my exoskeletons to myself, oh. <laughs> which is a fiction book. Um okay. and then I got what is it? The Creative Act or something. It's, it's like white with a black circle and a dot in the middle. You probably Is it music
1: based? Or- Okay, I'm, it I'm might blank. be
2: music based. Honestly, yeah. I, I, I it didn't take much to sell me on it. Like I saw it on the Penguin Press Instagram, and I was like, okay, I need a new, I need a book that helps me kind of center into the what I love about creativity again after that big project. Like I just, yeah, and the, just the first two pages were so good. They were so good. I was like, oh, okay, I'm gonna really like this. It's a bunch of short chapters that are more like meditations on creativity. It's what it looks okay. like to me so far. Cool. Cool. Awesome. Awesome.